Beyond the Burr Oaks, Chapter 2 How long I had been lying there with my head deep in the snow until the low, pitiful neighing of a horse came to my ears is more than I know. Wiping the blood and snow from my aching face, I glanced over my shoulder. What a ghastly sight confronted me! There was the sleigh, all battered to pieces against an immense oak tree, with the neighing horse tangled in its harness and half of the wreckage on top of him, while the other horse was prancing and snorting with its whole body a quiver with fear. Mustering all my strength, I managed to stand up, but when I attempted to take a few steps, I became dizzy, began reeling, and finally went down. After many such attempts, I succeeded in reaching the wreck, where I saw the body of Carl wedged tightly between the tangled horse and the oak tree. Crawling on hands and knees between the fallen horse and the tree, I labored frantically to free Carl. The more I worked, the more he seemed like a corpse. Finally, when I was exhausted and ready to give up, his body was released with my last jerk. Dragging him out of reach of the horse, I listened to his heart. My God, dead, I exclaimed in horror as I straightened up. How quickly hate vanished, to be superseded by a guilty conscience which made me weak with fear. I could see the terrible effect of the shock upon his aged mother and father when they were informed of the death of their only son. Realizing that something must be done, I hurried over to the horse which was lying on the ground tangled in the harnesses. Extracting a jackknife from my pocket, I sought out the binding straps and cut them. With a sigh of relief, the horse stretched, grunted, and scrambled to his feet. After ten minutes of difficult scheming, I managed to mend the wreck temporarily by tying the broken pieces together with pieces of the reins. As I was about to lead the horses to where Carl lay, I drew back in surprise, for there, in that sharp, cold air, I could see a faint, frosty breath coming from those pallid lips. Dashing across the snow, I fell to my knees by his side, grasping him by the shoulder and shaking him. I cried out pathetically, Carl! Carl! Wake up! Please, Carl, for the sake of your folks! But the only response was a fixed stare from his glassy eyes, which seemed to look straight through me into the far beyond. Dragging him as carefully as possible to the sleigh, I mustered all my strength and lifted him into it. Covering him up, I went around to the head of the horses. Having used the lines to patch up the broken sleigh, I was compelled to lead the horses at a tedious pace in order to keep the wreck together. The bleak wind had died down as the sun disappeared behind the distant horizon, leaving everything to the mercy of the still, frosty night air, 
which, as it permeated the enormous pines, froze their hearts to crystal, causing sharp crackling sounds to echo o'er the woodland. Even the sleigh, as it slid over dry, frozen snow, would cause shrill, piercing notes that could be heard by the occupants of the little cabin, whose welcoming sight would sparkle now and then through the timber. Each time the light appeared, I was tempted to quicken my pace, but the rattle of the broken sleigh prevented me from doing so. At last, after what seemed a thousand miles, I came to a halt beside the lane cabin. The door was flung open, freeing a flare of light that blinded me for a second. I began blinking my eyes until the door was darkened by a slim, graceful form who called out softly, Hello, who's there? It's me, I replied, with my heart beating as if to pound me to pieces. Yes, she laughed, but who is me? Ken, I answered in almost a whisper, for my heart had mounted into my throat. Ken, she exclaimed in joy. Rushing down the steps, she threw her arms affectionately around my neck, where she clung with her toes off the ground until she noticed blood on my face. Unclasping her hold about my neck and taking a few steps backward, she stood staring at me questioningly. It was then that I thought of Carl lying in the sleigh. After tying the horses, I ran back to where she was, Dora close behind me. We had a runaway, I blurted out as I was reaching over the side of the sleigh. He... He's dead, gasped Dora. Isn't he, Ken? No, I don't think so, Dora, I replied hopefully. You can bring him in my room, offered Dora. But please be quiet, Ken, for Dad is very sick tonight. Nodding, I picked up Carl and followed Dora. Oh, what's happened? whispered Mrs. Lane as we came in the door. Nothing much, Auntie, I soothed her as I laid Carl on the bed. We had a runaway, and Carl got bumped pretty hard. Well, you just go and tend the horses, Ken, and I'll see what I can do for him, said Mrs. Lane. And Dora, you get me some warm water, then you can help Ken. It was but a minute before Dora was helping me. How sweet her voice sounded as she jumped here and there, unfastening straps that I had overlooked. Each time she unhooked a strap, her hand would dart up and apply a few affectionate strokes upon the horse's wintry cloak, accompanied with soft, soothing words that even made the horses prick up their ears to catch every murmur. We had finished the chores and were returning to the house when Dora's mother hurried through the doorway, wringing her hands nervously. Ken, Ken, she shouted. Yes, here I am, I answered, running toward her. You'd better take the bay horse and ride over to Cal's place and telephone for the doctor, for I'm afraid Carl is hurt pretty bad. Darting to the barn, I slipped a bridle on the bay, led him from the building, and was dashing off through the moonlit night before the women had reached the house. 
It was about midnight when I returned from calling the doctor, and it must have been about three o'clock in the morning when he arrived. For an hour, the doctor and Mrs. Lane were busy with Carl. Each time Dora and I offered our assistance, we were politely told to stay away and keep a good fire burning. I believe I can hear Dad moaning, whispered Dora, as we sat there watching the door to Carl's room. See, there it goes again. I think I'll see what's the matter. You know, he's been much worse today. Rising slowly, she tiptoes into an adjoining room. After a short time, she returned, motioning for me to come. Dad wanted to know who was here, she said softly, and I told him it was you. He said you should come in by him. Nodding, I walked across the room and peered in. There, lying on a bed, was the withered-up form of big-hearted Dave Lane. When he saw me, a big welcoming smile spread across his sober face. Pulling a pale, weak hand from under the quilts, he extended it over the edge of the bed. Taking it gently, I gave it a slight squeeze. Hello, Uncle Dave. I greeted him cheerfully as I sat down in a chair by his bed. Hello, me boy, he returned. I spect you're kind of surprised to see me down like this. You bet I am, Uncle Dave, but you'll be up before long now. Hope, me boy, I'm afraid not, he replied, shaking his head sorrowfully. Aw, oh, don't feel that way, Uncle Dave. Why, I'll get a specialist from Chicago to come and see you. It wouldn't take long for one of them fellows to fix you up. No, no, Ken, don't do that, for it's too late now, and would only be a waste of money. Yes, money that we need so much for other purposes. As far as the money is concerned, Uncle Dave, forget it, I said, at the same time reaching inside my shirt and unbuckling a money belt. How I wish I could look at it that way, my lad, and maybe I could if it weren't for all them miserable debts that have accumulated during the last two years. Oh, how they've haunted me! he concluded with a shiver of dread. Here is close to five hundred dollars that may help some, Uncle Dave, I said, laying the money belt in his hands. No, Ken, I couldn't take your money like this, he said, pushing the money toward me. But you must, Uncle Dave, I insisted, again laying the money belt in his hands. It's the least I can do for you, and what is it compared to all you've done for me in the ten years I had no one else to care for me? Oh, my boy, if only you knew how thankful I am, if you only knew the worry you have relieved my mind of, I can't find words with which to thank you. He quavered with tears of gratitude in his eyes. Nor need you try to thank me, I answered, and before I had finished, he had fallen asleep with a big, peaceful smile on his face. So great were these worries preying upon his mind that they had weakened and disheartened him. But as soon as this burden had been lifted, his fatigued soul and body relaxed into a peaceful slumber. Mm -hmm.